Good morning, Northland Church. It is so good to be with you again. My name is John Cortinas, and my full-time job, Monday through Friday, is with an organization called Generous Giving, but I'm excited by any opportunity to come here and share God's Word. And so that's what I'm pumped about this morning. Um, God is doing some great things here at Northland Church. And you heard in the introduction earlier about this vision process. If you've been around the last couple of months, you've heard about it, but I'm very excited myself about the new vision statement that's come out of that. We heard about 49 people gathered together in a room, and through this is only through the Holy Spirit where 49 people get together and there's unanimity coming out on the other side. But there's this excitement around a vision that says at Northland we're all about engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And I hope that's what we'll be able to do this morning as we're together and in the weeks and months ahead as those strategies unfold. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what that looks like. Uh, I wanted to encourage us this morning as a congregation to prayerfully and joyfully consider our generosity here as a church family. I know that my wife and I are doing that in our own lives. I'm not on the staff here at the church. I'm a congregant like you. And sometimes we read in the scripture how God loves a cheerful giver, and that becomes a good way to opt out. Like, oh, I'm not so cheerful, so maybe that's not for me. Um, that's a convenient little way to slide out from it there. But um, especially with this new vision, I'm excited about the, the legacy, the decades-long legacy that exists here at Northland, but also the bright future that God has for us, again, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And so this is a season where it's been extra easy for my wife and I to be joyful and cheerful in our giving. And uh, we've heard about, you know, from every church in the country, experiences what we could call a summertime slump in giving. The, the income goes down for churches around the country. It's just this, people are on the road, people are traveling, and we know that that happens. And, but what would happen here if we reversed that? And it was this summertime boost, and we saw that at Northland. Wouldn't that be amazing? So my wife and I have actually increased our giving for the summer. We have our regular monthly schedule, but we've bumped it up here in July. And I would just ask if you'd prayerfully consider that. Thank you for your generosity if you're someone who considers this your church home and you give faithfully. You know, we can buy stock in a company, and when we do that, we have a stake in that business, and when it does well, we receive dividends, the financial returns from that stock. And when we give generously to the work of God, we acquire a stake, a spiritual stake in what's happening in that community. And that's true here as well as a church. So thank you for your generosity, those of you who have given faithfully for so long. That's why we're able to be here celebrating God and what he's done together. And would you just join me in prayerfully considering that as we move forward in the weeks ahead. So this is a very special weekend for a couple of reasons. First of all, we get to look at Psalm 23, one of the most prominent and famous chapters in the entire Bible. But it's also a great weekend for another reason, more personal, which is that this is my seventh wedding anniversary with my wife, Megan. So, Thank you so much. Um, I'm so grateful to God for the gift that she is. She's sitting right over here. And um, it's been a tremendous blessing to engage with her. And the challenge she's given me and the love she's given me has made me so much more than I ever could have been in Christ without her. But I bring that up not just to celebrate our personal anniversary, but I also wanted to give some encouragement to anyone here, because often we hear about a birthday, we hear about an anniversary, and we might think, oh, well, I'm not so good at making those occasions special. And so the encouragement I wanted to give is that no matter how bad you think you are, I'm actually far worse than you. I can guarantee that. Uh, 
Megan and I were falling in love in college. We were dating. We got engaged. And we got married, and I managed to miss basically her first five birthdays that we were together. Uh, you'd think it would just be one, but I think four out of five I missed. I was either out of town for a job interview or I had a trip planned out of state. There was always a decent reason, but I had this terrible track record. And I'm not a good gift giver either. And so, again, we got married, and I was thinking, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to do such a good job in our first year of marriage for our one-year anniversary. I want to get a great gift for Megan. So I'm going to observe her. I'm not even going to ask, right? It's going to be one of those, like, I give the gift, and it's a surprise, and it's perfect. And so I had noticed that she had baked bread a couple of times, you know, like from scratch, where you put in the yeast, and it rises, and you bake it. And she had a lot of fun with that. And so I'm thinking, wow, this is great. And I went on Craigslist, being a frugal guy, and I found a used bread maker in Ponchatoula, Louisiana. And so I hopped in my car, $20 in hand, and drove to Ponchatoula and acquired said bread maker, brought it home, and this is how good I was. I wrapped it in wrapping paper and taped it with duct tape and wrote in Sharpie directly on the wrapping paper, happy anniversary, Megan. Not one of the two from cards, but you know, right on there. And so that was me at my gift-giving finest, uh, used bread maker, but it turns out it didn't work either. Um, but it, the, it was the thought that counted, I think, I hope. Uh, and so uh, now for our seventh anniversary, I'm hoping that I've upgraded because Megan gets to listen to me talk all weekend long at all the services here at Northland. So happy anniversary, Megan. Um, my hope for her and for you is that this time, this half hour we get together is better than a used bread maker. Um, so Psalm 23, it's this magnificent passage of scripture and it's famous. And I wanted to start with a quick poll. And so could you raise your hand if at some point in your life you've had at least a portion of this psalm memorized? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's unbelievable. That's about 80% of us, if not more, who have had some of this passage memorized. Maybe second only to John 3.16 in its prominence. And so we're going to look at why that is, why this is such a great psalm that captures the experience we have living life. But I thought you know, in honor of all that memorization, let's recite this together. And so if you'd stand with me, we will put it on the screen if you don't have it actively memorized. Um, and we're going to read from the ESV. You may have the King James Version memorized. The ESV is in the same translational lineage, but the, the words have been modernized a little bit. So let's read this together, and you'll see it up as we share. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Father God, we come before you this morning, eager to engage with your word. Help us to engage, to be fully alive in Jesus this morning. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts to catch even the smallest glimpse of who you are. If we just see a little bit, Lord, it'll light our hearts on fire. It'll change us. God, I pray that I wouldn't stand in the way and that no distraction would stand in the way of what you want to do in our hearts and in our minds as a body of believers. In your name, 
Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for reading with me. And so, um, before we dive into Psalm 23 specifically, I wanted to start with a biblical big picture. We're going to take a look at the story of the Bible in a big way, and this idea that Psalm 23 sets up as God, as our shepherd. And once we've taken that 30,000-foot view, we're going to zoom back in on Psalm 23 again with a specific focus on that first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does it mean for God to be our shepherd? And then when we get there, what does it mean for us to say, I shall not want? And I believe it's those four words that can actually be life-changingly impactful in our day-to-day life if we live as if they are truly true, if we believe them. And so David wrote this psalm. We heard from Pastor Sean a week ago that David wrote about half of the psalms overall. He was a prolific songwriter. He was the second king of Israel. Saul was first. David was second. And so we're going to put this timeline. It's in your bulletin. It's going to be on the board. So a thousand years before Christ is when David wrote this psalm. And he's calling the people to see God as their provider, to honor God. And David represented as a king of Israel the high point of the monarchy spiritually in terms of Israel. And he he had this passion that God's people would honor him, would turn away from idols, would worship the one true God. And after David, unfortunately, his son Solomon had more of a mixed record. And after Solomon, things went steeply downhill. And for hundreds of years and for generations, the kings of Israel were mostly unfaithful. There were a few kings who cared about honoring God, but for the most part, it was terrible. They had abandoned faithfulness to Yahweh. And so we can fast forward a few hundred years, actually, and we get to the prophet Ezekiel who prophesied when God's people were in exile in Babylon. The nation had failed, the the kings were no more, and the people were wondering if they had a future, and that's when God raised up Ezekiel to prophesy. And so on our timeline, we've got Ezekiel around 580 B.C., 400 years after King David, and God comes in prophetically in the 34th chapter. He rebukes the monarchy of Israel, and he rejects it. He says, the kings have failed, the shepherds of Israel have failed. And I'd recommend that whole chapter to you because it's beautiful, but I've picked a few verses that will give us a flavor of what God says, because even though the kings failed, God wanted to affirm that he was not going to give up in chasing after and pursuing his people. So out of Ezekiel chapter 34, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself, that's in contrast to these kings who have failed, he says, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Hear the echo of Psalm 23, lie down in green pastures. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong, those who think they're okay without me, I will destroy. And you are my sheep human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So isn't this a magnificent promise, delivered through the prophet to a people in exile who don't know if they have a future, who are wondering why their kings have failed them? God says, the kings have failed, but I will not fail. I'm going to come after you and pursue you with my love. And that raises the question of how God would do that. And so in that same chapter, verses 23 and 24, he says this, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. 
I am the Lord. I have spoken. So I think this raises a question for us. We go, what, it, what does that mean? On the timeline, we have David in 1000 BC. We're 400 years later. David's been dead for 300 plus years, for centuries. But God says, I'm going to raise up my servant David. What is that going to look like? What does that mean? And I believe that it was a promise he was giving to the people. It doesn't necessarily mean David's coming back from the dead. It means God's going to do something new. And we can think about it like this. In our modern context in America, you know, we hear David and, and he means a few things to us, but what would be something similar in our nation, in our modern context in the 21st century? So imagine with me for just a moment, God forbid this would ever happen, but just imagine that our nation was in a second civil war. Again, I hope it never happens, but imagine the stress we would feel. In another civil war, every day we would wake up worried about our future. We were worried about whether our nation would be permanently divided, what's going to happen. But then imagine in the midst of that, there was a prophecy that came from God, and God said, I'm going to raise up Abraham Lincoln over America, and he will preside over one people from sea to shining sea. We would immediately know what that meant. It's not that Abraham Lincoln's coming back from the dead, but God is using that to make us a promise because we hear a unifying leader, the end of a civil war and then a unified nation, and we would go, oh, I have hope now. So I think that's what God was doing through Ezekiel to say, I will raise up David. And we hear the king after God's own heart, the king who wanted the people of God to honor the one God. And so it looks forward as this promise. It doesn't mean that David would be a new king, because God has just said in this same chapter that he's rejected the kings of Israel, and he says, I myself will become the shepherd. And yet somehow it would be through a Davidic figure that he would raise up over his people. And so it leaves this question mark of what does that look like? What's it going to be? We don't know what that's gonna, going to look like, and we go forward more centuries. Centuries go by. And like Pastor Sean said last week, the whole Old Testament the Psalms, if we read them in the light of Jesus, they all point to Him. And I think that's true in Psalm 23, that's true in Ezekiel 34. And in fact, we read in the Gospels that when Jesus looked out at the crowds, He had great compassion upon them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does Jesus say in the 10th chapter of John? He gives us the answer. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we hear Jesus say that and we go, oh, that sounds nice. He's our shepherd. But imagine being a Pharisee standing there listening to Jesus and you know the Old Testament like the back of your hand. And, and you're shocked and you look at your friend and you're like, did you just hear him say that? Did you catch what I just caught? And the tape is playing in your mind. You're thinking, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23, you're thinking of Ezekiel 34. I, I myself will shepherd my people. That's a promise of Yahweh, the one God. And yet Jesus is standing here as a man saying that same thing, I am the good shepherd. And so it says they picked up stones to kill him with. They were so angered by the statement that he had made. And Jesus knew what he was saying. He knew what he was doing. And so he rolls right on down in John 10, 27 through 30. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then just in case it wasn't clear enough already, Jesus drops the bomb and he says, I and the Father are one. 
And so Jesus stands there among these people. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Not only that, I am the Father. I am the one God. We are one. He says, guys, it's all about me. It all points to me. I'm here to fulfill the promises of God, to seek the lost and bring them back, to bind up the injured, to bring one people together. That promise of David, I am that David, except even more, I'm the Christ. I and the Father are one. And so again, the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him with, and if if you don't believe his claim to be God, that's actually the right thing to do. But if we stand here in, in the fellowship of believers who believe, then when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, our choice is to simply bow down and worship him for his identity as God and in gratitude for what it means for him to come for us like that. So David, he writes the psalm. Ezekiel raises the bar and points to a new hope, and then Jesus says, it all comes together in me. And now we can go back to Psalm 23, and we've seen the full story. We know how how the story plays out. So when we hear the Lord is my shepherd, we can think, Jesus Christ is my shepherd. God has revealed his plan. It's unfolded. And now we live with Jesus as our shepherd in a day-to-day way. So what does it mean for God to be our shepherd? And then what does it mean to say, I shall not want? Well, I believe there's a couple ways to think about shepherd. And the first is very biblical. It's actually right out of Ezekiel 34. When God rejects the kings of Israel, he calls them shepherds. So there's a biblical linkage between king and shepherd. Those are a unified idea in the text of the Bible. And so when we say God's our shepherd, he's our king. But I think often when we pray or when we talk and we speak of God as our king, we're thinking of a one-sided piece where God's my king, which means I'm under his rule. I submit my life to him. I follow what he says. And that's true. That's a very good way to think about it. But being under the rule and the reign of a king also has another dimension, which is that that king, if you're a loyal subject in their kingdom, they have a, a responsibility and a role to care for you, to care for the domain, for the kingdom that they preside over. So when we say the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my king, it actually means that he's the sovereign ruler who provides for me as long as I'm in his realm, in his kingdom. I actually got to live for nine months of my life under a king in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I went over there to study geophysics back when I was in the oil and gas industry, and I went to a university that was King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. King Abdullah was one of the richest men in the world, billions of dollars, and he had invested a lot of this money to start what he hoped would become a world-class scientific institution. He since passed away, and I was, but I was part of the second class of students to ever enter this program. We came from all over the world, and it was actually the first place in Saudi Arabia where men and women studied side by side in the same classroom in a, in a very conservative nation and a closed nation. Now, it was interesting being at the king's university because we were subjects of the king, being in a kingdom in an earthly sense, but we were also, uh, we were loyal subjects in a way because we were the king's students at the king's university, his special project. And so it's not a country you can just go to. You can't just apply for a visa. You can't just visit necessarily. It's not an easy place to do that. And yet I applied for my visa as one of the King's students, and it was just like this, and I got a five-year entry exit visa, no questions asked. I arrived in the airport in this overwhelming scene, and then there's a big sign, King Abdullah University. And I go, and I get in the black car, and it takes me to the campus. And then I see the big walls, the perimeter fencing around the campus with the guard towers, with machine guns looking out away from campus, and I go, wow. 
They take this seriously. This is the King's University. Nobody's going to mess with the King's University. One of my peers, he was a student there, he actually took one of his vacations, his holiday breaks from his studies, and he went to Italy to relax a little bit. And he enjoyed, while he was there, a beverage that Italy is very famous for. They make it from grapes. You may have heard of it. I, I hear we have it in the U.S. now as well. And uh, he, he had a bunch of this beverage. He had a great time. And then it's kind of thrown into his checked baggage. It's in his luggage, and he comes back to Saudi Arabia, not thinking, which is a country where alcohol is a major no-no. You don't do that. And so he's detained by customs, and then he ends up detained overnight. And so this is not a good day. You're in Saudi Arabia, detained overnight for breaking the law, and talk about the valley of the shadow of death. What's going to happen? He's probably wondering, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be okay? Well, the next day, we found out what happened, and the university got involved. They placed a couple phone calls. They find out he's one of the king's students. So guess what? The wine goes in the trash. The student goes free, gets in the car. He's back on campus. No problem. And I believe that picture of living under a king's domain is actually a great picture for us when we say God is my shepherd, which means God is my king. I'm under his protective care. And I may have a terrible day. I may have bad things happen to me. My health, my life may be threatened. But I actually know in all of it that the king is watching out for me because I'm in his domain. Now, I believe that metaphor is a good one, but it's actually a little bit incomplete for what the picture of shepherd is supposed to teach us. Because you can live under the protection of a king and never know that king. I never met the king of Saudi Arabia, never shook his hand. He wouldn't have known who I was if he couldn't pick me out of a crowd. And yet Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. The only way to recognize and know someone's voice is if you've heard it regularly, you've been in conversation. Psalm 23 talks about how he guides us, how he leads us. And so there's this picture of intimacy where we're engaging with God, not just the king who's up there who might protect me when I'm in a, in a bind, but actually the one who wants to come close to me in his power, but also in his nearness. So I think the second picture of shepherd is that of mentor. And so I'd love for you to think of the best mentor you've ever had, the best couple of mentors you've ever had in this life. It might be a teacher or a coach who believed in your potential when no one else did. It might be a pastor who came alongside you, a youth pastor, in a critical moment in your journey. It might have been your parents. But think of that mentor who poured themselves into you, who cared about you individually, the best you've ever had, imperfect as that was. Multiply that by a thousand, and I think that's a picture of what Jesus desires as your shepherd, as your king, and also as your mentor to come alongside you in your daily life. And I think it leaves us with the question, do we actually hear his voice and know his voice? Do you spend the first five minutes of your day or more actually listening for Jesus to say, you're my shepherd. I want to hear your voice today. If I don't hear your voice, I'm just kind of fumbling in the dark. So Lord, would you speak about my calendar appointments today, about the people I'm going to be with today, about things that are in my heart that you want me to change today, listening for his voice and walking faithfully with me is how we say the Lord is my shepherd, my king and my mentor. So that's a picture of what shepherd looks like. And so now I'd love to focus on what I think are the most critical four words in this psalm, which is I shall not want. Jesus Christ is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. I think those four words, as I mentioned, can change your life on a day-to-day -day basis when we truly believe them. So if you forget everything from this morning, it's three months from now, 
or it's a year from now and you're thinking about Psalm 23, oh yeah, there was a sermon about that one time. Just these four words, I shall not want. And if you'd say them with me aloud, with passion, I'd love that. And so I, I shall not want on three, if we could do that together. One, two, three. I shall not want. Beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. A sheep only lies down when it's eaten its fill. I shall not want because God has given me what I need. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I shall not want because God has brought me peace and comfort. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in those worst moments of my life, I can still say I shall not want because I know that my shepherd's staff will protect me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So even among those who hate me, even if people want me out of their social, social circle, people who want me dead, even there and even then, God gives me an overflowing cup and he says, I want to be with you as your shepherd and I can say, I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I believe I shall not want is powerful for our lives. I think one facet of that, you know, my life calling, my journey is, is in this area of money. And so um, I can't look at any passage of scripture without seeing the implications for money. And I think that's true here just like it is in so much else of the Bible, and it applies to our generosity. Sometimes God calls us to a gift that might feel scary, that might make us nervous. It could be to our church, it could be to a nonprofit, it could even be to a person that God puts on our heart and he says, hey, I want you to give. I want you to be a giver like me. And sometimes we're scared because we think that we are the only provider we have for ourselves. And I was thinking about my kids. I have children who are 11 months and three and five years old. And we try to teach our kids about generosity, and sometimes they're holding that dollar or that quarter, and we're telling them that giving is important, and they're scared, or they're nervous, or they don't want to. And they may have this thought, you know, if I give this dollar away, am I going to be able to get food tomorrow? They know that money buys food, and it's so sweet, it's cute as a parent to see, oh, they think that dollar is really what matters for them. And if they just knew that from their perspective, we have infinite money as their parents, we have all the food they need, we have a safe place for them to sleep, they're gonna be okay. And I think so often in my life, it's been the same. God has challenged me to a gift that makes me nervous and my palms are sweaty and I'm fearful about the future and what if I make this gift? And God's just saying, oh man, my son, if you only had any idea that everything in the world is mine and you giving this is training your heart, but I've got your back. You're going to be okay if you step out in faith. And so I shall not want impacts our generosity, but it impacts every area of our life. And I believe that there's two sides of this coin. One side of it is that we can, in the great moments of our life, in green pastures and by still waters, we can say, God, thank you for everything that you've given me. With a posture of gratitude, Lord, everything I have comes from you. You've given me great relationships. You've given me a family that's working. You've given me some financial stability. And everything in our life feels good. And we just go, wow, God, this is all from you. I shall not want. And those are great moments of life that can draw us near to God. 
But I think one of the reasons that Psalm 23 is so powerful as a witness to our lives as, as individuals is that it not only has green pastures, it not only has still waters, but it also has a valley of the shadow of death. And it also has being surrounded by enemies. And it's in those moments, too, where I shall not want is not just a statement of reality, of our facts and what we feel, but it also becomes a commitment to trust in God. So we say, even though my kids are going crazy and I, I don't think I can manage them, and I don't know what to do as a parent, or my parents are needing more care than ever before and I'm not sure how we're going to figure that out, or my job situation isn't going well, or I've lost my job entirely, my marriage is on the rocks and we're really trying to work out some things and I, I certainly don't feel like I'm in a green pasture. But in those moments too, it's our declaration of I shall not want that becomes a commitment to trust in God as our shepherd, even then. I've mentioned before the season of life where my wife and I got called into our current season of ministry. It was three years ago, and God took us from lots of money to less money. He took us from corporate America to ministry, and he called us from a globe-trotting adventure where we'd go country to country to country to come settle in Orlando, Florida. And none of that is the script that we had written for our lives. None of that is what we wanted, but we knew we were following God. And Pastor Sean told us last week that when we look at the Psalms, part of what we see is it's okay to pray an honest prayer to God, a prayer that even includes some anger, that even includes a lot of emotion pouring out, and that's the season that we were in. And we felt like, God, why would you do this to us? Why would you give us a different path than the dream that was in our hearts? And yet we're going to trust you anyways. And so in that season, uh, I was... I think I cried a lot through that season, being very transparent about it, so it ne didn't necessarily take much to get me going um, when I was having a low day emotionally. But a couple of these worship songs about the goodness of God were really good at doing that. You know, Good, Good Father is this great song. King of My Heart is another great song where it just affirms singing to God, you are good, you are good, you are good. And I couldn't make it through singing one of those songs without choking up and breaking down. And I realized eventually is it was because there was a dissonance in my heart. I didn't feel like God was good. Emotionally, where I was in my life, where I was in our journey, my wife and I were, we didn't feel the goodness of God in our emotional state. And yet, we were clinging to Him, saying, we're not going to let go. We're actually going to still declare, God, You are good. Even though I don't feel it, even though I'm kind of mad at You, Lord, because I don't understand what You're doing, I will say in faith, that you are good. And it was through doing that and clinging to him that it was our commitment to trust. And he's brought us through that season so beautifully, but it took a couple of years, and we're still in some ways working through that, trusting in his promises and seeing his faithfulness. Dallas Willard, this great writer and thinker, he's passed away now, but he wrote a book on Psalm 23, and it's called A Life Without Lack. And he actually reflects on this idea what does it mean for us to engage in this way with the Lord and say, I shall not want, even in the darker times? And I wanted to share this great quote from his book with all of us this morning. He says, a life without lack is all about knowing the unlimited sufficiency of God in your moment of need. When you're betrayed, abandoned, lied about, and scandalized, when you're sick with a fatal disease, when your finances are going down the drain, when you see your loved one, walk through the doorway of hell. 
That's the moment to trust. And in trusting, you will know God. Your point of desperation will likely not involve being sawed in two or wandering about destitute in sheepskins, but it might. Regardless, when you have nowhere else to turn except to God and you turn to Him, your faith of desperation will meet the fullness of God and you will taste the life without lack. And I believe that's a picture of what God has for us in Psalm 23, that our faith of desperation in our worst moments will lead us to trust in God's promises, and then we have a life without lack, even in the midst of what looks a whole lot like lack. It's in Pastor Matt's book that I've been reading in recent months where he actually says it's not that Christians suffer any less than anybody else in this life on earth. We just suffer differently. And it's the unique hope of a Christian that can say in a season of suffering, I can hold on to Jesus. I have a foundation that doesn't shake when my circumstances are going down the drain. And I can hold on to Him. Even if I feel some anger, if I'm totally honest at God, I'm going to hold on to Him and say, Lord, I feel this. I feel angry. I feel abandoned. But I trust in You nonetheless. Job is someone who knew this very well. And we could do a whole sermon series on Job. And so we're not going to dive deep, but you probably know the story. He lost his health. He was covered in sores. He, and his body was falling apart. He lost his wealth. In a series of accidents, his wealth disappeared. He lost his family. His family members died, all except for his wife. And his wife, who was left, was giving him some not great advice. But she was saying, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Why all this clinging to God? Why are you hanging on to God when your life has gone to hell, essentially? Why are you hanging on to God? Why would you do that? Curse God and die. Spit in the face of God. And in one of those hard conversations, in one of those difficult moments, Job said this, chapter 13, verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will never let go of my God who comes after me, who holds on to me and pursues me. So it's when we declare our trust in God as our shepherd that we find his goodness and mercy following after us. On our timeline, we saw three scriptures spread over a thousand years. What do they have in common? God comes after his people. He pursues us. In Luke 15, Jesus talks about the idea of a shepherd one more time, and he says that he'll leave the 99 sheep safe in the open country to go after just one sheep that's lost and that's lonely and that's abandoned and scared and injured. He pursues you. Watching online, he pursues you. He pursues you and me and every member of the worship team. He pursues us individually as our king and as our mentor who wants to be in fellowship with us. He's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 and Jesus lays down his life as the good shepherd, seeking the lost, bringing back the strayed, binding up the injured, and strengthening the weak. His pursuit is passionate, and we can even use the word reckless, which conveys the idea that it feels outlandish that he would love us so much. There's astonishing generosity in the love of God that took him all the way to the cross where he gave his life for us. So we can safely say and sing, there's no wall that God wouldn't kick down in his pursuit of us. There's no lie in our heart, in our life, that he wouldn't tear down to speak truth to our hearts. 
And so my prayer and my hope this morning is that we could embrace Jesus as our shepherd, listen for his voice, and press into him so that we can say with Psalm 23, I shall not want. Let's sing this song one more time. If you'd stand, let's worship together.